Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. No other parent or community should have to live through this nightmare. I have shared previously, and I will reiterate today, that gun ownership is a right. And with that right comes great responsibility. Based on the information and evidence I have received, today I am announcing charges against the shooter's parents. And good evening and welcome to the show. This is Yona Bud. I will be your tour guide this evening on the road to recovery. I appreciate you joining us. We know you have other choices and we're happy that you've chosen us. I'm in the studio with Natasha and Devon and uh, my good friend Sophia as well. So we're excited for a very busy show and we hope you participate by calling in on the stuff that kind of makes sense to you where you feel like sharing. So that's what this is about. It's about us talking to you and you talking to us and seeing if we can share some information to help everybody out there um, on their own roads to recovery. Uh, you can do that by calling here at 416-870-6400 or if you live outside the area, 888-225-8255. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. First segment is a call in. The question is, should parents be responsible for their children's actions? That's the question. Call in if you want to join us. Should parents be responsible for their kids' actions? Michigan school shooting, three dead, eight injured after a student opens fire. That's the latest and the greatest on the news these days as it relates to something horrific. 15-year-old sophomore opened fire at his Michigan high school. He killed three students, including a 16-year-old boy who died in a deputy's patrol car on the way to the hospital. Eight other people wounded. Some critically included a 14-year-old girl who was placed on a ventilator after surgery. Investigators still trying to determine a motive for the shooting. And as we get further into this article, we're going to certainly see uh, that we can develop a motive and they probably should have paid attention ahead of time. We want to know what you think. 416-870-6400. Let us know. Do you think parents are responsible for their kids' actions? You know, they grab a gun at home, take it to school and kill a bunch of people. Should the parents be responsible for a 15-year-old? Yeah, I kind of think so. So, you know, th- we're talking about a kid that walked into school. Um, you know, he, the, the kid's father had bought him a, a nine millimeter Sig Sauer, uh, malt, you know, a semi-automatic uh, pistol, and uh, that's what was used in the shooting. He didn't know why the man bought the semi-automatic gun, which his son had been posing pictures. He's been posting pictures of practicing his shooting. The three students who were killed, right? Um, they all died uh, later on that afternoon in emergency room and in the police cruiser. Michigan school shooting. No warning signs of student who opened fire. At Oxford High School, police say, and I say that's a bunch of crap. Lots and lots of warning signs. A teacher who received a graze wound to the shoulder left the hospital, but seven other students ranging in 14 to 17 remain hospitalized. The gun the boy was carrying had seven more rounds of ammo in it when he surrendered. The undersheriff, Mike McCabe, he said that the student's parents advised their son not to talk to investigators. And police must seek permission from a juvenile's parents or guardian to speak with them. This kid's parents, we're going to get into them here in a little bit. They told the kid, don't talk to the cops, right? Just keep everything to yourself. This is the kid who took a gun that his father bought him, took it to school, and killed a bunch of people and wounded a whole bunch more. Authorities were made aware of the posts on social media that said uh, there, had been, um, there had been threats of, uh, of, of a shooting at roughly 1,700 students' school. Uh, they go on to say he stressed how crucial it is for tips of that kind to be sent to authorities. 
uh, significance of a situation. They downplay the significance of a situation in early November where a deer head was thrown at that same school. There's no, no relation. It's totally unrelated. However, however, the only relate, the only real kind of related story here as it makes any sense, um, is, uh, that November that is that the, the, the school sent a notice home to the parents, uh, saying that they were responding to rumors of threats against the school, but hadn't found any. And this kid's parents would have received that warning. We have David from Toronto. Government should be responsible for kids' actions. David, how are you this evening? I, I'm good, thank you. And people might sort of say, why? Well, they're the ones that permit guns to come into the city, to the countries. They've got associations. I mean, listen, the only way to get rid of guns on the streets, because there's no reason to have guns. There's absolutely no reason. And then they wouldn't give the can you imagine buying a 50? You got any kids, David? I, I do have a kid, and, and, you know, I've got a nine-year-old kid, and, and I'll tell you something. You know, uh, you know, just to say, the government allows these. They've got us. I mean, they've got the Rifle Association more so in the United States and Canada. I mean, I don't understand, you know, why parents are getting blamed for kids doing something, you know. If okay, so, 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 okay, so I, I hear that. And, you know, and I, and I appreciate what you're saying. And, and I want you to hang into the rest of the article. Um, and then maybe call me back if you, if you, if you, uh, if you have a different, a, a different mindset. I want you to hear the rest of this, this segment, please. And you're going to see why I think the parents are responsible. I appreciate the call, David. Hang in there. And if you feel like touching back with us, please do. Uh, but, and, and he's right. Governments should be more responsible for the availability of guns and to whom they're sold and so on. You know, if a parent buying it for a 15 year old, somehow that got passed. The guy in the gun store must have saw something a little funky. Nobody says anything. Anyway, the prosecutors in this particular case say that the Michigan school suspect wrote, help me, and drew violent pictures. A prosecutor says the parents of a teen accused of forced, uh, killing four students were summoned a few hours earlier after a teacher found a drawing. So before all of this, the parents were, were brought to the school. Parents found a drawing of a gun, a person bleeding, and the words, help me. Uh, Karen McDonald, she's the county prosecutor in Oakland County. She said uh, she filed involuntary manslaughter charges against Jennifer and James Crumbly, the kid's parents. His name is Ethan Crumbly, the kid's parents. McDonald said the gun used in the shootings at Oxford High School was purchased by his father a week ago and given to the boy. And during the, the whole conversation about the, the notes and the stuff in the class, Ethan was then returned to his classroom and later emerged. So later in that day, they had him in the principal's office, right? You're listening to me out there. They had him in the principal's office, and they decided that with the note, help me, and pictures of a gun and people bleeding, that it would be okay to send the kid back to class. Like, David, if you're still listening, I hope you are. Like, this is where I think the parents start to be involved. This is where I think the parents and the school are involved, right? So he returned him to a classroom, and guess what? Later in that day... He emerged from the bathroom, surprise, surprise, firing a gun at students. Now he's charged with murder and other charges. They had him in the principal's office hours before the attack. Like, seriously, folks. She sent her son a text message as soon as he got picked up. Or when she saw the message, when she saw the, 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 the notices, she sent him a text message after she left school and he went back to class saying, Ethan, don't do it. So a prosecutor in Michigan followed charges against the parents. And uh, they're charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter under Michigan law. Involuntary manslaughter charge can be pursued if a prosecutor believes someone contributed to a situation of harm or death and so on. Convicted, you could do 15 years. The parents were only individuals in the position to know uh, the access to the weapons. But the gun seems to have been just freely available 
uh, this kid, Ethan, had been charged as an adult. He's being charged as an adult with two dozen, with two dozen crimes, murder, attempted murder, and terrorism. I feel bad for this kid. This is, I mean, I, I feel terrible for the victim, but this is a kid who needed some help. Give me a call here, 416-870-6400. Jump on this bandwagon. Am I the only one that's, like, upset here uh, that this kid got missed and slipped through the cracks and killed a whole bunch of people and hurt a whole bunch of others, and now is gonna, and now his life is over too? And the semi-automatic gun was purchased legally by his father a week before. Um, and frankly, in the U.S., parents are rarely charged in school shootings involving kids, even as most minors get guns from their get guns from their parents or relatives' houses. Right? Should that be? Should they be accountable? That's the question. Four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred. There's no Michigan law. This is where it just took place that requires gun owners to keep weapons locked away from children. So, David, you are 100 percent right, sir. The, the, this should be on the Michigan, uh, uh, the, 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 the Michigan um, authorities, the, the, the government authorities in the state of Michigan. Uh, there is no law today that exists that that will, in fact, uh, provide for um, a parent to have to lock their guns away from their children. We're going to keep going here. We're going to push through our time a little bit because I'm just I'm just on a rant. Uh, all I can say at this point is the actions of mom and dad's behalf go far beyond negligence. They knew something was wrong with the kid all along. The Karen had kid had some uncomfortable behaviors. He was asking for help, drawing crazy pictures, things that parents should have paid attention to. Wednesday, the parents met with the school officials. The, their son's classroom be favored just a few hours before the shooting. We know that, right? He stayed in school and then emerged. We know that, too. The superintendent for the district posted a YouTube video where he said the teenager was called to the office before the shooting, but no discipline was warranted. Absolutely. Steve from Oshawa, how are you? Nobody acts on signs I'm from good. previous gun incidents. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. How are you? I'm pissed off, man. This is like insane. I, I, like they, you know, they they had the kid in the class. The parents knew the kid was a little offside. Everyone knew the kid was a little offside, and nobody grabbed it. Nobody even went I'm, through I'm, his. I'm, nobody even went through his backpack, Steve. Nope. you're 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 one hundred percent right. And I said to your screener, I'm a gun owner. I've been around guns all my life. I have my kids at the range. They're both adults now, but I've had them since they're young. But they've never had access to firearms. And every time one of these shootings happens, it, there's always signs, and they never act on them. Look at Sandy Hook. They yeah, knew there was yeah, problems, yeah, several yeah. people, and yet he yeah. still had access to those firearms. Why? Like, it just drives me insane when I see this. And we never, ever, ever look at the real problem. We, we look at the tool and not the action. Like, it's so easy yeah, to blame the gun or blame the car or whatever. But we never, ever want to uh, go to the fact that there was an issue and we could have done something. I want to cut you off only because we don't have that much time. But real quick question. Parents responsible or not responsible? Absolutely. 100%. Okay. That'll boy. Have a great holiday, Steve. Thanks for listening. And please call in again. It's great to have you. Uh, Manslaughter well, charges. So Thanks, buddy. Um, manslaughter charges against Michigan shooters. Parents break new legal ground. There's little precedent for it um, these days. But the police are saying that they're holding the charges. The, the parents knew. They charged a couple with involuntary manslaughter. Not only that, the parents fled. They had to find them. They were hiding in a basement somewhere. Uh, so they, you know, even acted like they were they were guilty. They fled because they were feared fear their own lives that uh, people would be uh, looking to uh, harm them at some point. Anyway, we're uh, the morning of the shooting. The kid discovered a drawing depicting a bullet, a bleeding figure. The words "blood everywhere." The thoughts won't stop me. Help me! And no one stopped this kid. They had him in the principal's office. They let him go. Anyway, some crazy stuff. We're going to take a quick break here and be right back, and we're going to talk about some other stuff. Did you see the video where the police were beating on these uh, these uh, black teens in Montreal? 
Like, there's just no sign of any let up here. Kids just aren't getting a break. We'll be right back. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey there, welcome back. This is the Road to Recovery. I am your host, Yona Bud, and we're glad to be here in the studio with you. We're going to take one quick call here from Terry in Scarborough, uh, just on the uh, on the last segment. And uh, we also got a message from a good friend of mine out there, uh, Matt, and uh, he said the ultimate question is: uh, should, Shouldn't the principal be held responsible for not reporting their findings to the local authorities? I'm not sure they had enough time, Matt, but that's a really good pickup. And uh, thanks for uh, texting us and letting us know. Uh, you can text us here at six four seven four eight eight. 0086 and we'll share your information. Terry, how you doing? We're going to have to make this a quick one so I can segue into the next uh, into the next message, the next uh, topic here. But yeah, parents should have, absolutely be responsible, right? I, I believe so. And to come to that conclusion, I just had to scale the situation back a bit. If my kid breaks my neighbor's window, and by the way, he did once. He, he shot a puck through my neighbor's window. I'm going to be responsible for that. Now, that's that's the opposite end of the spectrum, obviously, but it's still the, the whole concept that the parent should be responsible. You know, and I, I appreciate Terry, and, and you know, and I thank you so much for being a listener and, and sharing with us tonight. Um, first of all, you know, your kid probably has a wicked slap shot now, so something good, I'm sure, came from it. But you know, you know, there was a time when I grew up where some of my my buddies, you know, their parents were big hunters. Their fathers would buy them a, a you know a, a shotgun or a, a, some kind of rifle when they were you know fourteen, fifteen. But you know, that they were their parents were absolutely like crazy about uh, gun law, gun safety, teaching them how to shoot, taking them to the driving range. Uh, to the shooting range, uh, you know, they would go out and they would shoot skeet and do things like that on the weekends. You know, it's kind of like going fishing or playing golf or something like that. I, I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But I like, like, like Terry and others before him, what I'm not comfortable with is when a parent goes out, buys this kid a, a gun, does nothing about locking it up, knows the kid's a little offside. I'm sure there's other drawings and stuff around the house. I'm sure the kid conducted himself around the house in a way that would have said he was a little offside. And here we go. And now there's dead kids and a whole bunch of injured people and a 15 year old who's going to spend the rest of his life behind bars. And I can tell you after being spending 10 years in the prison system as a chaplain, it's going to be horrific for him. Horrific. Anyway, speaking of horrific about being a te- for being a teen, uh, quick story here. The, que- the Quebec police said they're investigating footage of a violent arrest. Um, it wasn't. A- yeah, the violence in the arrest was the way the Quebec police officers, all white, by the way, ascended on these black kids and beat them up. Beat them up and degraded them, stuck their face in the snow, dragged them around. It, it, okay, so, it, and and now what ha- what's happening? So Francis Legois, he's... Um, He's, he's said he's made aware of the footage. I think he's the one of the people involved in the policing department, Quebec City Police. Uh, we need to shed light on the event, Legault says. Quebec police say they're investigating the violent arrest after footage showing officers dragging, hitting, and pinning down black youths in the snow. Like, okay. Okay. <clears throat> I've been around a lot of tough kids. I do a lot of work in different parts of the city. I, I worked, I spent a bunch of years running a, a charity that, you know, helped inner city kids, uh, great kids, greatest experience of my life, frankly, um, in so many ways. Uh, but the, you know, the, the they're tough kids. <laughs> they're big and they're tough kids. Never had to be violent. I've been threatened. I had a gun pointed at me, had a knife pointed at me, never had to worry about it, never had a, you know, it was never an issue. We were able to talk it through. I got to believe that the police officers must have had an alternative 
than to kick the crap out of these kids, stick their face in the snow, and drag them around like garbage. The police issued a news release saying it's seen that, that saying this is seen kicking snow are from an interaction that took place between November 26th and 27th. They're looking into it. The release said that they've deeply concerned by the behavior of the officers. Yeah, hello. SPVQ, um, special victims, I guess, f- for the uh, Quebec police officer, Quebec, Quebec, Quebec police department, excuse me, has been made aware of the video circulating on social media involving police who intervened in a way that greatly concerns the management of the police service. Yeah. So they intervened apparently in a fight outside a bar and the, and the, the staff requested the help of officers patrolling by. So it's not like they called anybody. It's not like 911, I got a bunch of kids, blah, 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 blah. Hey, it's a couple of coppers were going by. Hey, can you give me a hand in here? We got a problem. Okay. Uh, they said he would not tolerate discrimination. That goes on to say Dennis Turcotte. He's a chief of Quebec City's uh, police force. Uh, Dennis Denis Turco, I guess is a better way to pronounce it, said he would not tolerate discrimination, but was too early to say whether or not the officers involved in the arrest would face sanctions. Okay. So I don't know in what world, in what world, in what area of policing? These kids didn't have a weapon from what I could see. These kids didn't appear to be fighting back from what I could see. What, by the way, what, what I saw is the same thing the rest of the world saw on social media. Didn't seem to be any pushback at all from, from the kids. Trying to understand how this happened. First of all, surprised to see, here's a, a, an ex-boxer, a professional boxer, I should say. Uh, his name is Eric Martel Beholi, and uh, he said he saw one. He recommended he recognized one of the black kids in the video. First of all, I was extremely surprised to see the youngster I know, and I secondly, I was shocked to, not to say extremely scandalized, I should say, when I saw the gesture the police officer made, which was gratuitous. Clearly, you can see he's immobilized with his arm behind his back. He said, it, adding, he was still waiting for news on the young man's condition. To do that to a young person so gratuitously has no place. The boxer goes on to say, the arrest adds fuel. The racist, racial tensions between police officers and the black community in Quebec, uh, it's not normal, <laughs> frankly, in 2021. It's just not normal to see this kind of behavior. We live in a world that we have to be held higher, higher, uh, to, uh, more accountable, at a higher standard. We can't be treating our kids like this. There's got to be a better way to subdue them. There's got to be a bet. I mean, we're talking about probably a disagreement. The kids probably got mouthy. They were probably belligerent, maybe drunk. Who knows? I'm guessing. And the cops just got pissed off and did what they do best. And in this case, what they did best in Quebec at this point was to subdue them, stick them to the ground, and treat them like a perpetrator. No, you got to treat them like a kid at the point until they have a gun in their hands or a weapon in their hands and start conducting themselves like adult criminals in that way. You need to treat them like a kid. I don't know what anybody else thinks, but that's what I think. 416-870-6400, talk Lovely to know what my buddy Matt thinks. If he's still listening, he can send me a text, uh, 2647-488-0086. I want to know what you think about this. I mean, should the police not be held more accountable? You can see how transparently they acted, Marchand said. He's one of the people representing the police. They acted rapidly. They have the capacity to tell us rapidly what the conclusion to their investigation is. We still don't know what the response of the uh, Montreal police force is around this behavior. I just can't believe there's any assertion that would make sense, that would qualify, justify, or provide a, 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 a some legitimacy to treating children in that way. It just doesn't make sense to me. These children, you know what, they're going to grow to hate police, not respect police. 
And as a result of that, we may lose them to some form of violence because that's how it turns around, right? Instead of wanting to go to a police officer to get help for the things you need help with, you don't bother because you're afraid of them. And now you've got a bunch of kids in that community who are afraid to go to police because who knows? They might be dragged through the snow, spit on, kicked on, you know, dragged around. Just you don't treat anybody like that, any criminal, if you can avoid it. Haven't we learned from the I can't breathe? You know, get off my chest. Anyway, we're going to come back. We're going to have a better story, a good story, a nice story. I'm going to share a nice story just to give us a little break here and all this uh, dark indulgent stuff for uh, today's trip on the road to recovery. It's going to get a little nicer here in a minute. Give me a call, 416-870-6400. Share your views. We'll be right back. Yonabud 640, Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie, welcome back to The Road to Recovery. You're on the bus here with Yona Bud, and I appreciate you uh, joining us this evening. We're talking about all kinds of stuff. We have one guest, uh, one uh, caller I want to give some, a little bit of time to, not much, but a little bit. Don, we have uh, here from Newmarket. He disagrees with me about the kids' uh, gun handling. So, uh, Don, I'm going to give you like uh, 30, 45 seconds before we go to the next segment. Tell me why you disagree with me, brother, and thank you so much for calling. Yeah, right on. Um, listen, I haven't seen the video, um, so you do have that advantage uh, over my comments. But uh, I, I guess I take exception to a couple of things you said. Whereas yep. you said it's not like they phone nine one one to call the police; they just simply call, you know, flag some police officers down. There's no difference. If they're calling for help, they're calling for help. And, yeah, I get and, it. You're, you're probably right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I would agree with and, you. That was a and, that was and, a misstatement. And I, and I also would go further. You're going on and on about them being kids. If they're in a bar, if they're you know of of drinking age, and they're conducting themselves as adults, they're adults, pal. They're not kids. And and while I am not condoning, if they got a beating or whatever, I'm not condoning that. I'm not going there. But. If if they want to act like adults, they need to be take responsibility as adults. Um, so are you a, are you, a, are you an ex cop, Don? I'm not. Oh, interesting. Okay. Just curious. You have kids of your own? I do. Okay, you have kids that are teenagers. But yeah, they're in their twenties now. They've they how how, how how would you how would you feel if they got into some kind of kerfuffle with the police, even if it was their fault, and they were dragged around in the snow? See, I don't know what dragged around in the snow. Okay, so here's what you got to do, brother. If they've been put to the sidewalk to be restrained, and there happens to be a snowbank there, but we do live in Canada. Okay, so so, hang on. Don, 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 it's my show, so I get to cut you off. I got to tell you this. Do me a favor. Go look at the video. Go online. Look at the video. You can find it on all kinds. Global News has it as well. Go look at the video, and if you want, text me back here, and we'll get you back on, and we can talk about it again later in the show, or you can text me at or or, or reach me through the week, roadtorecovery at 640toronto.com. Send me an email, and you and I can talk about it again once you've seen the information. I do appreciate you calling, buddy. Thank you so much. Let's, uh, Let's move to the next segment here. We have a guest on hold. Uh, her name is Jody Burkell. Uh, let me tell you why I have Jody on the uh, on the call on the on the show with us here tonight. I was just watching TV on another network, um, and I was watching uh, this segment, and it says giving back to the Jewish communities of Canada with Hanukkah full and swing. And by the way, happy Hanukkah to all my Jewish friends. Uh, for those that celebrate, or those that celebrate, friends that celebrate it. Uh, seventh candle tonight. If you forgot, tomorrow is the last night. The biggest presents for last, right? Anyway, Jody works for an organization 
organization uh, that does good things. Uh, they're an organization that helps kids. We're going to get her to tell us more about that. But the, the segment says, with Hanukkah in full swing, it's time for the dedication uh, and sharing light with the world. I'm all about sharing light in a dark place. Uh, she was joined uh, by uh, Jody Burkell, who heads up an organ- a, a, a program, actually, called Live to Give Moms. And it's a program of NCSY Canada, uh, and they take uh, Jewish values and put them into action uh, within the community. Jody, thank you for waiting, and thank you for joining us tonight. Hi, Yona. Thank you so much for having me. It's great, great oh, it's a, to be here. It's a pleasure. So first and foremost, tell us what NCSY does, please, kind of the, the nutshell version. So the organization NCSY um, is a Jewish organization that reaches out to teens and their families um, to inspire Jewish lives and uh, to take responsibility in the world and really to instill the beauty and value of, of their heritage uh, to the teens and to their families uh, through many programs. And, and uh, the Live to Give Moms is just one of, of many that we offer. So tell me about that. And so... By the way, your kids, I assume, were involved in this organization at some point? Actually, yes. Yes, my okay. son is an alumni, um, and uh, my other two are involved as well. Okay, cool. And um, your kids involved with you in this Live to Give program as well? I mean, you're doing it. Are you, are you one of the moms in the Live to Give Moms? So I run the program, and yeah. uh, yes, yes. Uh, I definitely try and include my family as much as I can. Okay, terrific. What's your what's your actual role though? What's the what's your you know what? How does your boss know you're doing a good job when when you're running your programs? In this what, particular what's the, program? Yeah, yes, the Live to Give program. The Live to Give Moms. Um, so, what does success look for look like for us? Um, success is one where we're hearing feedback from families. So often the program, sometimes it's just moms, Yona, that are joining our program, but we've expanded it to include the family as well. And what we found over the year and a half that we've been running this program, because it's relatively new for NCSY, is that the feedback from parents who are involved, they are thanking us for giving them an opportunity to, for them to give back in a meaningful way to the community, but also they're looking for meaningful ways to engage with their children. Um, You know, I'm a mom of teens, so to do things that engage my children in a meaningful way, I mean, what parents not looking uh, to inspire their kids to look outside themselves? Um, yeah, well, we're all, you know, as I know if you've heard any shows previously, but we're all on this show, we're all about, you know, modeling good behavior for your children. So, you right. know, the fact that you're, you know, the fact that you're knees deep in a program like this and, and offering it to others, I'm, my ho- I'm hopeful and I'm sure you are too, that, you know, your kids would, would you know, carry on this at some, at some level. Tell, tell me the impact that you see uh, in, in terms of the mental health impact, not, not, I guess, even for yourself and your own kids, but the, the, the positive impact that giving back to, to a community, in this case, a Jewish community but the the concept of giving back in general that kind of how does that kind of help you and maybe you know the kids and families that you that you touch and the work that you do how do you see it impacting their mental health okay so you know you know i'm going to share just personally right because it has to start with us okay each individual okay so i know personally even before we started the program to bring it to others you know there's nothing in my life, nothing that I could buy for myself, someone could buy for me, that would ever give me the same feeling 
that I have inside when I've made a meal for someone else or when I've, um, you know, visited someone who's sick. The feelings, the emotional, mental, uh, even all the physical things, you have a physical reaction from giving of positivity, of different, you know, hormones and chemicals going off in the brain, these happy hormones. So I'm saying that feeling that you get from giving cannot be replicated by by getting. And I think it's a misconception in the world that we think we're going to feel better and we're going to be happy and have, you know, the more that we have, the happier and more content um, and fulfilled and, you know, will be in our life. But it's not true. It's actually the opposite. I don't mean to interrupt you, but we have sure. limited time. What, what, are you, what are you giving when you're talking about live to, get, you know, you're getting, sure. live to give back moms? Give me an idea of what you're giving. Like you said, cooking sure. and preparing. Like I, I'm all about, I know you're an excellent cook. I've heard through the, root, the, the grapevine. So you can cook for me anytime if it's going to make you feel good. But give me an idea of, of what the, uh, these live to give programs do. Like in terms of, sure. you know, are you cooking for families? Sure. You're providing clothing. Give right. me an idea what, 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 what okay. you're doing when you actually go out and do something. So every month we do something different. So we partner with a different organization in Toronto, and actually we've done uh, one in Israel as well. So we get what have we done? So we've writ- we wrote letters to um, Holocaust survivors, elderly people in the beginning of COVID, um, and people sat down with their kids and they wrote letters um, of hope and encouragement during the pandemic. So that's one of the things we did. Another thing we did, we collected food for the Jewish food bank. And so we opened the eyes of, of our participants to an issue in our community that perhaps they weren't aware of. And so that in itself, um, a lot of people don't know about some of the, the problems and challenges in their own neighborhood. And so we're introducing them to the wonderful organizations that exist that, so it's, it's like a jumping off point. So we bring them this opportunity, they get involved, so they collect food for the Jewish Food Bank. We also volunteered um, for an organization called Bicker Holim, which uh, prepares meals for people who are in the hospital. So we went and we prepared meals for people who are in the hospital. Um, next month, actually this month, sorry, we're, we're making sandwiches for 250 sandwiches for Toronto's homeless community. So there's a lot of hands-on activities that people are doing. Um, You know, a lot of it during COVID, we couldn't be in person, but um, thank God we're at a point where we can begin to come back and be doing these activities. It's all action, Yona, right? And and that's, that's the transformative power of the program. Um, because it's actions that that change us and that um, really impact our emotional well-being. It's in the doing, and so we are giving people the opportunity to to give and to do. Well, I really appreciate you joining us tonight, and and really kudos to you and your team for the work that you do. And uh, uh, as as the great rabbis would say, you know, you should have blessings and strength to continue your great work. Um, and uh, we'll have you back again. I want to talk about some other stuff that you do uh, in your in your in your you know kind of empowerment of others to do great things. And by the way, you know it's not just Jewish, not just the Jewish community that does this kind of stuff. Um, pretty much all the communities uh, that are active in their uh, religious or, or uh, faith groups 
um, do good stuff. So I recommend everybody get out there and do something to give back because when you give back, you get back. And what you get back is this awesome feeling of feeling like you've done something good. And even if it's just helping somebody across the street, opening a door for someone, carrying the groceries for an elderly neighbor, whatever it is, or making food like my friend Jody does. I'm excited to have her make me some food so she feels good. <laughs> I'll feel good too. Uh, Jody Burkel, she joins us here from Jewish Family Experience Coordinator at NCSY Canada, an exceptional organization, and we're so happy to have had her uh, join us this evening. When we come back, we're going to talk about whether you can have your kid pulled away from your ex because he's a smoker. Oh, yeah. Can secondhand smoke be a reason for children's aid to get involved or for your lawyer to get you custody? When you come back from break here, we're going to talk about that. Yonabud 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yonabud on 640 Toronto. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us here on the uh, last segment of the first hour here on the Road to Recovery. Um, this is Yona Bud, your host and guest, doing what we need to do best. Uh, thank you. Uh, go. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not the guest. I'm your host. You're supposed to be the guest. 416-870-6400. If your kid's parent, other parent, let's say you're split up or, you know, you're, you're the sister of somebody or somehow you know that there's a young kid, let's say, I don't know, uh, five, six, seven, eight, three. And, you know, one of the parents is a smoker. I was watching the, uh, the, the Sopranos second movie or the movie, the, the Sopranos kickoff of the, of the tone of, uh, Gandolfini's uh, young son. Um, it wasn't a great movie, but <laughs> I guess I needed to watch it. It was fun. But listen to me. Listen. Um, what I want to say is I was in the movie. You could see, uh, the mother. Uh, you know, Tony, uh, Tony uh, Soprano's mother smoking over the, over the, uh, over the, the, uh, the, uh, the carriage. Uh, of the child, which was, you know, his sister coming up, um, smoking and, you know, blowing smoke into the carriage, into the kid's face. I mean, it goes back years and years ago, but it was, you know, back in the forties and fifties, but still, can, is it cool to be smoking around kids? I, I don't think so. 416-870-6400-888-888-225-8255. Sometimes my ADD gets ahead of me and I, I speak too quickly. So please bear with me. Uh, give us a call. I want to see what you think. A mother got children's aid involved over her ex's smoking. Over the next six days, there was an investigator. She hired a private investigator to watch her kid and the father. Now, people who, you know, will, uh, you know, will, will, will say that, um, you know, people will say that, you know, she shouldn't hire an investigator and that's a sleazy thing to do. You know, you do whatever you got to do to protect your kids. And if you're a split up or you're divorced or whatever, and one or the other parent thinks that the kid's at risk, and the only way you're going to know that is to track them around and get pictures taken to see if they're, if, if in fact they're, 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 they are at risk, then you do what you got to do and, you know, you, you ask for forgiveness later, right? Over the next six days, this investigator would, uh, would surveil three addresses that this kid attended, the child attended. They're talking that child's like three years old here, okay? And they would note that the subject, the kid's father, would periodically peek his head out of, outside the front door. And the investigator reported a strong cigarette smell, secondhand smoke emanating from the subject's residence. So I don't know if you have ever been around a smoker, if you've ever, you know, smelt secondhand smoke. 416-870-6400. Want to hear from you. If you've ever smelt secondhand, like it's obvious. It stinks. Right? Like it's just a really crummy feeling. So... um, the, the surveillance shows the lengths to which an Oakville mother has gone in trying to prove that her former partner is exposing their three-year-old son to secondhand smoke. 
The case highlights a gray area in legislation when it comes to secondhand smoke exposure. While it's prohibited in vehicles around children, so you can't smoke in the car with your kids in the car, it's against the law, in workplaces and in common areas of shared buildings, there is no such rule for private households. Right? So once again, here's the problem. There's no such rule for private households. You can smoke up a smoke like a chimney, smoke your weed. I, I've been in houses doing interventions where there's little babies and the place reeks from weed, just reeks from weed. You can smell it around the block. The case highlights a gray area. So we're trying to figure out, you know, what should be done. And, and, and she goes on to say child welfare agencies have shown reluctance to get involved in parental disputes over secondhand smoke. Uh, but there's a children's lawyer in Toronto who's said that they're working on, on changing that. For the last three years, the, this kid's mother um, has been in a dispute with the child's father because she alleges he's constantly smoking around their son. The three-year-old's father told the star that he did not want to comment but not denied that he smokes around the child. There's video, there's pictures, there's information from a licensed private investigator. We And I, I am a licensed private investigator as well. We don't lie. It's not worth it. We lose our ticket. It's not worth losing your, your license. We're licensed by the government um, of Ontario. You lie, you're done. Nobody cares, she says. If I feel like it was a, if this was a judge's daughter or son, things would be different. She's been to court numerous times. And the Smoke-Free Ontario Act prohibits smoking a vehicle with a child present, workplaces and so on, but like I said, doesn't cover homes, family dwellings. So Pamela Kaufman, uh, Kaufman, who she's an assistant professor at U of T and a scientist with the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit, um, doesn't address smoking in private residence. She recognizes that there's no identified safe level of secondhand smoke. There's, there's no such thing as only a little secondhand smoke. Any of it is no good. As a matter of fact, according to the 2019 Statistics Canada Census, 13.8% of Ontarians smoke daily or occasionally with the highest rate among males between 20 and 64. A report published by Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada said that smoking is the leading cause of preventable death in the country. I know we've heard this a long time. Secondhand smoke is number 11 and is the main risk factor in more than 3,100 deaths annually. So it's not a lot. I mean, 3,000 deaths, a lot of deaths. But, you know, let's say we're talking about, a, you know, looking at, 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 uh, at Canada, you know, the number of, of population. But it's 3,000 deaths more than need to be. You know, I mean, I guess if you make a willing decision to live with a man or live with a woman or be with someone or work in an environment where everyone's smoking, then you make that choice. By the way, I wonder if you can lose your job or if you can leave a job on the grounds that people smoke and you can't handle the secondhand smoke. Might save that for our, uh, our employment lawyer we have on later on today. Anyway, so her first complaint to Children's Aid, which opened an investigation, ultimately concluded the secondhand smoke exposure is not a child protection concern and the father was not putting the child's house at risk. Like, come on. Here we go. We have them right in their hands and they let it go again. So then they went to court requesting the child's visits be supervised. The request was rejected. The courts have issued, however, the courts have issued two orders for the father to not smoke around the child, the most recent one in September 15th of this past, uh, uh, of this year. The judge disagreed with the mother's approach and did not look kindly upon her hiring a private investigator or seeking blood work on her own. She actually sought blood work. Uh, to see how much uh, smoke, uh, secondhand smoke was in, in impacting their child in terms of their blood work, right? Not only was she told no, and she wasn't doing, she wasn't part, she wasn't conducting herself in the best interest of her child. The court says she was also ordered to pay fifteen hundred dollars in court fines. 
gets uglier, right? According to a document published by a Physicians for Smoke Free, judges have been reluctant to, to use parent smoking habits as a deciding factor in custody disputes. She's not asking for change of custody. She's just asking for him to be supervised when visiting the kid. I guess perhaps there is a change in custody if it's a visitation matter, but still, right? So she hired a private investigator to back up her claims of secondhand smoke exposure because she said her concerns have repeatedly been dismissed. In April, she had blood work taken from her son. Kid's three, right? Blood were taken from her son one week after he stayed with his father. The results showed uh, continine, um, uh, um, a metabolite of nicotine, at levels of 7.5 nicograms per milliliter. Uh, Hamilton CAS later consulted two doctors, Dr. Burke Barrett of McMaster and Dr. Tariq uh, Khalifi, uh, who conducted the blood work. CAS led letter McMillan explained why the case was being closed. It cited Barrett saying the results would not meet the threshold of toxicity in the blood and cited Khalifi saying the results are not concerning. Continent uh, in the blood is not a major health concern of its own, they say, but is a measure of secondhand smoke exposure. Goldstein, uh, Dr. Adam Goldstein is a professor at the University of Northern California and the director of tobacco intervention programs there. Uh, he says children exposed to secondhand smoke are more likely to develop asthma, upper respiratory and sinus infections and pneumonia. Long term, it increased the risk of uh, chronic respiratory disease, obstructive pulmonary disease, Goldstein says. He added that children can also be affected by third-hand smoke, which is residual nicotine left on indoor surfaces from tobacco smoke. So if you're smoking indoors, it's on the, it's on the table, it's on the chair, it sticks to the windows, it's on your hands, it's, you're kissing your child, it's all over your face, and you know, like, so when asked about the measure of 7.5 and a three-year-old was said, uh, he said it would be very concerning. This is this independent guy, Goldstein. Ideally, you'd certainly want to see less than five, uh, than, than level five there. A level of seven would indicate that the child, particularly if it's a child that is alt, um, altering who they're living with, um, is, uh, depending on what you've measured, it would indicate the child has some significant exposure, Goldstein says. Um, and those levels could be, those levels could be cancer causing uh, at virtually levels of seven or higher. Uh, I had, uh, I have a hard time believing that they would say it's okay if the child was only exposed a little bit of burning asbestos, right? But he's just being sarcastic. Um, anyway, the long and the short of it, the evidence is that there would, they wouldn't be banning it, uh, in common areas. They didn't think there was something that, you know, put people at risk. Why there's, why it's not, why it's okay to smoke at home in front of your kids is way beyond me. But uh, anyway, she wasn't successful. The kid, uh, by the way, has asthma, as it turns out. And uh, surprise, surprise, surprise. When we come back from our longer break here for the second half of our show, uh, we're going to be joined by a guest. We're going to talk about um, why the Toronto, the government of Toronto thinks it's okay to slow down the licensing of rideshare people during a time when if people drive when they're hammered, people get killed. Anyway, we'll be back and talk about that in just a minute. Yonabad, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yonabad, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. You are listening to Yonabad here on the Road to Recovery for our second hour. And uh, we really appreciate you joining us this evening. We know you have other choices, and we're glad that you chose us. You can reach us this evening, 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. Be glad to share your views and thoughts with other listeners as we uh, proceed through the show. Um, Mad Canada urges Toronto councillors to reconsider pause of rideshare drivers' licenses. 
So Mad Canada, Mothers Against Drunk Driving uh, Canada, an incredible organization, <clears throat> is urging City of Toronto councillors and bureaucrats to reconsider the pause on rideshare driver's licenses, especially with a busy season. Toronto councillors paused the issuing of new rideshare licenses on November 9th as the city works to roll out its driver training acceleration program, which will eventually be mandatory for all rideshare Drivers further, Matt insists pausing the licenses uh, as the holiday season arrives when alcohol consumption increases and the risk for drive impaired driving will have a negative impact on Torontonians. One study has found in the U.S. ride-sharing apps have led to almost 6% decrease in alcohol-related traffic fatalities. And uh, it goes on to say, I would, you know, as a counselor, as, a, as, a, as an interventionist, a criminal uh, a, a crisis guy, you know, it just doesn't make sense to limit the opportunities uh, for people to get uh, get home in a safe way. So um, anyway, not sure what, what we're doing here, but uh, we have a guest with us uh, this evening uh, from uh, legal. He's the legal director of MAD Canada. His name is Eric Doomshet. Eric, thank you for joining us this evening. I'm, uh, I'm glad you could uh, find some time in what I hope is a restful Saturday evening for you. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so this is kind of uh, disturbing, to say the least. Um, What's uh, what's Mad's view on what on what's happening here, and are you getting any traction in slowing down this uh, this uh, freeze for the time being? I mean, the fact that they're freezing it to implement a new program, um, you know, I can see that happening perhaps in the new year. Like, you know, I think you would agree it's probably a good idea, but not when people are going to be relying on uh, on a, on a system that's already uh, people are already waiting sometimes forty five minutes for a, for a rideshare uh, app a ride to pick them up uh, at you know one o'clock two o'clock in the morning when we need them the most. What's uh, what's Mad's take on it, and what do you have to say? Well, I want to be very clear. Uh, first off, Mad Canada does support mandatory training. Uh, we do. The ride-sharing programs do. The city do. Everyone agrees that uh, mandatory training is something that needs to happen. We just disagree that it should be done, that this pause should be done until uh, the train's ready. Our opinion is that the system right now is needed. When the training comes into effect, then it should be, uh, maybe the pause goes into effect then. Uh, so our opinion right now, not a great idea. Uh, you know, public transit is has already been compromised by the pandemic. You have the fact that many people are hesitant to take transit because of the pandemic. And I would say there's a, there's a, who may not be, uh, as hesitant to take a ride share because there's a difference between riding in a car with one person who is wearing a mask, well, you are also wearing a mask, and being on a subway car or a street car or bus with uh, who knows how many other people who may not be uh, wearing masks. Uh, and then on top of that, you have the fact that many seats on public transit are marked off in an effort to reduce transmission. And then you have the TTC has already had to reduce its service because uh, it is having staffing shortages. So public transit is compromised. Now they're compromising uh, ride sharing, which I believe has seen about 50% of its drivers uh, leave the profession since the start of the pandemic. So it's just it's, it's a questionable strategy to do right now. So, um, according, according to Christi, uh, Councillor Christine Wong, Tim, 
she's talking about she she added that the city council voted to introduce the driver acceleration program after uh, uh, in 2018 after 20 year old 28 year old Uber passenger uh, was died during a in a crash on the expressway. Um, give me an idea if you can to the extent that you know, Eric. Um, what what is in this driver training program? Um, that is, you know, that would cause them to pause new licenses now uh, versus, you know, you're putting this requirement in place uh, going forward. What, what, what is it that they say? What is it that the, 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 that the, the city says, the licensing folks say? What is it that they're trying to prevent uh, by pausing this, uh, uh, the, these new licenses that we need desperately right now? So, and, and as you said, we've lost so many drivers, right? I, I have a patient. Uh, he's now a patient. Uh, he's been a patient for two or three weeks. Uh, you know, he basically got a DUI because he was at a at a nightclub in Mississauga, and it was like two thirty in the morning. His car was there. He had too much to drink. He waited an hour for a rideshare app. No one picked him up. He got in his car and got and got caught. Um, so I, you know, I'm totally with with you know with you on uh, on where this is you know where this is going to cause us a, a juggernaut uh, during this holiday season. But what is in what is in this training program um, that needs to be you know in place before they're licensing new people? Well, the actual content of the training programs is not something I'm familiar with. I would just say that I believe they passed this uh, the need for this training back in 2019. So why is it taken so long? Why is it suddenly so important? Uh, it's not something I can I can figure out. I mean, when we before appeared before the council committee, we suggested, hey, you know, the holidays are coming up. This is a time when alcohol consumption can increase, as can the risk of impaired driving. It's not a certainty, but it can. So maybe we should hold off on this pause until after the holidays. And it doesn't seem like we're getting any traction on that front. Well, I, I you know, I, I, people need to listen to you. <laughs> I mean, you're, you are the organization that's been speaking against drunk driving for so many years and doing such an amazing job. You know, there was, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't drink, I don't use drugs uh, and drive and all that stuff. So, you know, I used to look forward to, to, you know, police stops cause you'd get these terrific mad scrapers and things to put on your windshield and, you know, things to put on, you know, uh, flags you could put on your on your on your antenna, which we don't have anymore. But you know, you know, I used to look forward to being stopped because I had nothing to hide. Um, and you know, that's mostly because of the kind of work you guys have been doing to increase uh, the the um, I guess the understanding and the transparency of what's going on in the world of drinking and driving. And we're just not getting it. People are still just not getting it. Um, and providing rideshare opportunities, um, I think, is probably one of the safest things we can do. Uh, you know, and there's here's the other problem. It's it's there's an onus on the on the bar itself to reduce the amount of drinking someone has if they're too drunk to drive and so on to try to get their keys from them and so on. But if people feel trapped and they can't get home, they're going to make that bad choice, aren't they? Uh, I, you know, 25 years ago, uh, when Mad Canada was still relatively young. Uh, every morning, the phone lines. Every Monday morning, the phone lines of Mad Canada's headquarters would be flooded with calls by people uh, who tried to do the right thing uh, on Friday night, on Saturday night, but were unable to do so because there either weren't enough cabs, or you know it was a situation where the cab wouldn't accept the fare because it was too short a ride. Right. Municipalities at the time didn't issue enough taxi medallions, and so there was a crisis every Friday and Saturday evening when bars and restaurants uh, let out for the night. And the, the evidence 
agrees ride-sharing, when it's properly executed, solves these issues. I mean, there are peer-reviewed journals, there are studies, even the police are saying that ride-sharing results in a notable decrease in impaired driving. Uh, so we're, we're worried that this is, uh, is going to happen again. Like you said, people, it's winter, it's cold. Yeah. Uh, people, the, the difference between, um, you know, that extra 15 minutes, extra 30 minutes, maybe the yeah. difference between someone making the smart choice and yeah. choosing not to drive impaired and someone making a poor decision, which could potentially have life altering ramifications for someone completely, a complete stranger. You know, the other thing is, uh, as you bring this up, you know, the whole concept of people uh, at, you know, at the end of the evening accepting a ride with someone who's a relative stranger because it's just so convenient and then, you know, and then often turns out to not be a great, uh, a great story. So it also puts people at risk, you know, women in particular, um, it puts people at risk to, you know, take a ride with someone because they can't get a, a ride share uh, call. You know, even myself, I got to tell you, um, you know, trying to get a, I was trying to get a, an Uber the other day to go somewhere and. And, um, you know, every, everything I clicked on, there were no cars available. And I needed a car in the next, in 20 minutes, and the soonest car I could get would be an hour. Um, I felt myself rather stranded. You know, I went to the old school of calling a cab instead, which isn't my first choice. But anyway, I'm just seeing that the rideshare apps and the response time just during, you know, during a work week, uh, when we're not talking about, a, a, you know, an extensive evening um, where they, you know, where they increase the cost of the ride, you know, it makes it the, the, the availability of drivers are, are, you know, lessened. The time for pickup is greater. Uh, there's, you know, it's just not doing well. And I, as I can see from what you're saying, you know, we have less drivers and so on. This is, this is, I think, just not a, a well thought through plan. And I'm very hopeful that we're not going to see uh, real negative ramifications. But Eric, I really, uh, I really do appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, I'm talking to Eric uh, Doomshad. He's the legal director of Mad Canada. You've been around for 25 years. Uh, not me specifically, but the organization has. In some, in, I just, I, I thought maybe that was a story you were share, sharing from, you know, way back when you were uh, taking the calls. But uh, great to have you on the phone, and appreciate all the hard work you and your organization do. Um, talking to Eric Doomshet from Legal, he's a legal director at Mad Canada. Uh, thank you so much, Eric. Uh, but thank you know, you it's a pleasure. So here's here's the deal. You know, like, you know, maybe if we reach out to our politicians and say, hey, you know, let's do something, let's support Mad. Maybe get behind Mad in terms of the the work they're doing. Make your donations. Share share in what way you can. Have them come to speak at your school. Have them come to speak at your organization. There's lots of ways that uh, this organization can benefit you. But in the meantime, if we can show some support to our local counselors and so on, and say, hey, listen, let's keep these uh, rideshare apps f- flowing. Keep these licenses flowing, and then you can bring everybody back in and train them as required. I, you know, that's uh, it. Just seems to make sense, man. I just you know. I just don't understand how we get to these places where we're just making bad choices and bad decisions. Anyway, speaking of making a choice or a decision, whatever happens, what happens if there's a fight in public? What do you do? What happens when you intervene? When we come back from break, I'm going to share a couple of stories of what happened to me, and then I'll share a couple of stories of uh, what's happened to some that have uh, reported to uh, the media. And I want to hear your stories. You know, ever intervened in a couple fighting and it turned out not so well for you? 416-870-6400. Love to hear from you. We'll be back from break in just a minute. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yonabud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, and welcome back. Thank you. This is Yona on the Road to Recovery. Appreciate you joining us tonight. You know where your children are, your loved ones, where your 
pets. It's getting cold out there. If you don't know where they are, you should probably find them. And if you can't find them and you're worried about them, call 911 right away and uh, see if they can help you out. If you need to hear from me or want to talk to me throughout the week, you can by calling 877-777-5808, 877-777-5808. And uh, we'd be glad to connect with you and uh, talk to you about whatever uh, interests you. And if we can help in some way, that would be great. Um, speaking of helping people, uh, so years ago, many years ago, I was driving home from uh, doing an intervention. It was in the middle of the night. I was in downtown Toronto coming up Young Street at about 3 in the morning. I got close to Bloor Street, uh, Young and Bloor, and, and coming uh, south to north, and I could see this guy just just pounding on this woman. I mean, they were at a bus stop, and he was punching her and kicking her and threw her down, and she was crying and screaming and looked all disheveled. They both looked like they were you know, pretty high or drunk or something. They were not in great shape. Um, I jumped out of the car, went over to see what I can do. I kind of pulled him off her in a positive way. I know how to restrain somebody properly. And as I'm restraining him and pulling him away from her, she comes up behind me and smashes me in the back of the head, trying to, trying to get me out of the way. And then they go off running together hand in hand, um, you know, doing whatever they're doing. Um, other time I intervened between, uh, a mother and a child where the mother was being very aggressive with the child, um, tried to help out, tried to get the store security involved. Um, no one wanted to get involved. Afterwards, when I left the store, the woman was waiting for me. She threw eggs at my car. And, um, yeah, so no thank yous there either. want to know how you feel, right? If a couple is fighting in public, should you intervene? 416-870-6400. Well, there's an article here by Jen Kirsch, a special to the star. She's an excellent writer. Uh, many of us has been there. You're out minding your own business when you suddenly witness a couple uh, arguing. A friend of mine was recently in this position. He was at the Toronto Bar and overheard a woman saying she's um, she's got uh, going to order fries. And her boyfriend said, Really? I thought you were trying to lose weight. My friend was bothered by the boyfriend's aggressive tone, and after hearing him, continued to treat the girlfriend disrespectfully. He approached the woman and said, you know, you don't have to sit there and listen to that. So I'm not sure. Is that intervening appropriately? Not so far. The woman had an appreciative uh, but worried look on her face, and moments later my friend was punched. I don't like it when people speak to women like that, especially since uh, having a daughter. He said men have treated women poorly for generations, and it's up to us to stop it. Well. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's the kind of thing you want to intervene in. It's different if someone's pummeling on someone else and they're, you know, they're causing bodily harm. Um, you know, whether it's a, you know, a person who's being beat on by several other people or whether it's a man beating on a woman or in some cases, even a woman beating on another woman or a child, which, right? So, uh, someone else had an incident there, uh, during the summer where the, someone had bad reaction to eardrops and, uh, she was out with her boyfriend. They were walking down the street to the walking clinic and she had her hand over her stinging eye, which was tearing, uh, you know, profusely from the, the, you know, the eye infection. And some man stopped them and said, asked her if she was okay. And she said, yes. And then her boyfriend suddenly aware of how it might look, started to explain what happened when the guy cut him off by saying, Hey man, I'm not talking to you. I'm asking her. So sometimes people reaching out to intervene are just looking to disturb the stuff. You know what I mean? He then asked me again in a more stern voice if I'm sure I was okay. When I confirmed, he apologized to my boyfriend and said he didn't mean any offense, but said these days you never know. Though I wasn't in any danger, I did appreciate the gesture, she said. A man made the choice to be an upstander, says a clinical psychologist. Her name is Alexandra Solomon. She's a professor of psychology at Northwestern University in uh, Chicago. Um, she says the Canadian Museum for Human Rights defines an upstander as a person who recognizes injustice, knows their personal strengths, and uses those strengths to create change. 
that sometimes in a conflict, there's a bully, there's a bystander, and there's an upstander in many situations. The man who stepped in wasn't sure, but he was moving through a public space with the sense and awareness that, as a man who lives in a world where one in three women is a survivor of some kind of physical or sexual violence, women are frequently not safe in the context of their most important relationships, their most intimate relationships. So when a couple is fighting, you know, and you step in, you think you're doing good. So the Me Too movement is that the, is the invitation is being extended to men to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. There's something more than just, you know, being abusive to your partner that is being married, that is being aware that as a man, there's a measure of responsibility you have as a man towards other men and as a man to be part of the solution instead of the problem as it relates to women. We've been taught if you see something, say something. But before jumping in next time, bear witness to what you deem to be a problematic situation. So the best solution would be if you see someone in a violent situation, what do you do? Come on, you know what to do. You call 911. First thing you do. You don't want to get in the middle of it because you don't know if the guy or the girl you're pulling off or the person you're pulling off, uh, the other person may have a weapon. They may be in a psychotic frame of mind. They may be in a, uh, you know, in a, in a state of mind where they're looking to act out in a violent way against anybody. So putting yourself in the middle of that, although it's hard not to when you see the abuse take place in front of you, it's very important to make sure you get home safely to your family, right? So if you see something, say something. But, you know, it's, it, the first thing you do is ask, you could ask a person if they're okay. And even in terms of the situation where clearly the stranger was coming from a good and protective place where that woman had the teary eyes, again, the stranger gets to walk away from the situation, leaving the partner they're trying to protect to clean up the mess. So when you bring it forward, you might be putting the person that you're trying to protect in greater danger. See, see what you did? See that you had you because you're crying and you're whimpering, the guy came over, right? That kind of stuff. So if you need to get involved to defuse it in immediate danger, she says, it's up to you to make a judgment call. You might also want to consider resources like calling for help. Like I suggested, privately providing the person being verbally, emotionally abused a domestic abuse hotline number, slide them a phone number if you can, or anything else that might help de-escalate rather than escalate the situation. Stepping into it is likely to escalate the situation, not likely to de-escalate the situation. So you've noticed that this that since the pandemic, people have been checking on you uh, when you're having a moment, right? With, with especially if in your partners, with your partner in public. So gaslighting you, right? When you're manipulated by someone psychologically means to doubt, uh, you know, by psychological means, excuse me, to doubt your own sanity, to gaslight them, has become such an overused term as of late. But it's an experience that happens all too often. If you're the one who's getting it, and no, and no, and knowing look from a stranger or being pulled aside by a well-meaning observer about the way your partner's treating you, instead of getting defensive, get curious. So the experts say that part of the nature of an emotionally or physically abusive relationship is that you take on the aggressor's worldview and perspectives, and because your partner invalidates your experiences, makes you feel bad, and because you're, you, know, you start to invalidate your own feelings, your own experience. So having outside people offer reality testing or validating for you is a good thing. It's stressful, though, right, because it creates this, uh, some kind of dissonance between I want to stay in the relationship, this relationship is actually harmful. So a lot of people stay in relationships that aren't good for them, and people around you can see it. They can hear it. I have so many patients that have been in domestic relationships that are toxic, that you know, and, and they were toxic for years, and they would go to family functions, and the way that one or the other would talk to each other, you know, and abuse each other, and and and, and pull and push, and and in some cases, you know, smack across the back of the head in front of a table full of people at a dinner, is is just unacceptable at every level. 
So having people outside offer that validation is sometimes a good thing. But you got to be careful. Because if you're in a difficult relationship, a harmful situation, and somebody comes out and calls your buddy, your brother, your, your boyfriend up on it, it puts you in a bad spot because he's going to want to, you know, lash out on you later. That's how people get out of dangerous and healthy situations, by beginning to recognize that they deserve to be treated with kindness and empathy. You've got to be validated. You've got to be validated that you're a good person. If you know anybody who's experiencing abuse or know someone uh, who needs help, right, call 416-863-0511, 416-863-0511, and let them know that there's help out there, that people can help them, and, you know, they don't have to be in an abusive relationship. If you're in a relationship that doesn't make you feel good about yourself, you shouldn't be in that relationship, period, end of story. Anyway, we come back, we're going to talk about the decriminalization of uh, small amounts of illegal drugs, and uh, whether it's something that we're going to see here soon or not, it's certainly impacting um, police officers when they get caught for things and they have a they have a, an addiction, they seem to get away with the things they get caught with. Anyway, come back. We're going to talk about that. Yona Bud, 640, Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Because drug use and its impact are health issues, they should be treated as such rather than as uh, matters for law enforcement or criminal justice. Hey, welcome back. This is Yona on the Road to Recovery. I appreciate you joining us this evening. Toronto's top doctors recommend decriminalizing possession, small possessions of amounts of drugs. Um, and they're seeking, the, they're asking the province to increase funding to help expand harm reduction services, increase overdose outreach uh, beyond homeless shelters to parks and drop-in centers, and deliver mobile drug consumption services outside the Toronto, outside the downtown area. So I just want to make something clear. I've got 500 uh, fentanyl test strips uh, in my office and uh, I've been trying to find someone who will partner with me to give them out. Um, and uh, what this would allow people to do is test uh, their their drugs of any kind. Um, there's a way to test it. Um, and it would show, you could also test your urine to see if you have fentanyl uh, in your urine. But you could also test your drugs, uh, cocaine and pills and heroin, anything like that, just to see if you have some fentanyl in it before you use it. So I'm just trying to find a partner out there if you're listening, uh, one of these um, one of these uh, safe injection sites or somebody in the government to give me a call so I can provide these for free. I'm prepared to provide thousands if I can find a partner to distribute them. So in the meantime, we're trying to uh, get the government to uh, uh, decrease the uh, criminalization, decriminalize the, uh, the issue of small possession of drugs on the basis of helping uh, harm reduction, scaled up prevention, uh, you know, helping people get the help they need, right? So uh, Chief Raymer says the uh, decriminalization model should also include a safe supply of drugs, something healthcare workers have demanded for years. So we've talked about it before on the show. Uh, there are some facilities in Toronto that you can live at uh, where they will provide you with a small amount of hydromorph in the morning and in the evening to help you over your opioid um, um, dependency. And if you're an alcoholic, there are places that will dial, dial out small amounts of alcohol enough to keep you from getting sick. Uh, and it's proven to be successful. It hasn't really ramped up anywhere, but it's proven to be very successful. Um, and we're dealing with a huge problem here, this opioid crisis, uh, people losing their children to fentanyl overdoses uh, in small communities, big communities, everywhere, right? People just don't know what they're doing. So if you're used to doing, you know, a certain amount of heroin, let's say, I'll tell you how this works, right? So let's say you're a heroin user, okay, or you're an OxyContin user, and you're used to taking one, two, three pills 
if you're taking pills. Forget, but we'll talk about needles in a minute. So if you're, if you're used to taking, you know, four or five or three or four, uh, 80, you know, uh, oxy 80s, uh, you know, to, to get, you know, to get yourself, you know, healthy for the day, so to speak, in terms of uh, getting you past your cravings and withdrawal, get you to that point where you're hiding from reality and it's getting rid of the whatever toxic going on in your life at the moment. It's a short term solution, you think. Anyway, if you're used to taking three or four of these pills in one shot, but the ones you bought are laced with fentanyl, three or four of the same ones you're used to take that are now laced with fentanyl, cut with fentanyl, have fentanyl in them, any way you want to describe uh, the presence of fentanyl in drugs, will kill you. If you're a heroin user or you're an injectable user and you're used to shooting, you know, the way you, the way you draw back your, your drugs in a syringe is, you, you know, there's markings on the syringe, one, two, three, four, so one-tenth, two-tenths, three-tenths, four. So if you're used to shooting three or four-tenths of something into your arm, and you've got drugs that you don't know are tainted with fentanyl, and you shoot the same amount into your arm that you normally would with clean or somewhat clean heroin or heroin without the presence of something like fentanyl, it's going to kill you. So people are dying not because they want to kill themselves with drugs. It's not people killing themselves with drugs. It's people killing themselves with tainted drugs. They would use my test strips. Chances are we would save lives. There's been 351 deaths, according to a paramedic, uh, paramedic data in that time frame. Uh, paramedics have responded to 5,776 suspected overdose calls in one year between 2020, November 2021 and October 20, uh, November 2020 and October 2021. A 61% increase in the same time frame from the year before, and it was really crummy the year before, and crummy the year before. We're not doing any better. So Ontario's big mayors, um, big city mayors, a group representing the leaders of the largest populations in, um, in, in Ontario, are talking about, you know, this, this criminal decriminalization. Maybe a little tough in, to convince the Ontario government, they think, but a little more enforcement and less of a public health approach is probably not the way to go. Uh, he said they can really de- decriminalize uh, drugs without also offering more. Uh, we, they can't do that. Uh, they can't decriminalize without offering more treatment capacity. I totally agree, right? Uh, it's spread by drug use, you know, this pandemic that's coming. It's, it's, just not, it's just not getting any better. We're just not doing a good job of keeping this under control, right? Um, go on to talk about here that um, we have another ep- epidemic along the way, says, um, uh, says one of our, uh, our uh, councillors. It's spread by drug use. It's an epidemic that's taking almost as many lives as COVID did. We need to take a public health approach. Maybe that's why I hear more understanding and support that is generally required. It's, uh, the Gov- Ontario's Ministry of Health said it will review recommendations. It's also allocated $30 million for up to 21 consumption and treatment sites and has invested $32.7 million for targeted addiction services and supports, including treatment and care for opiate use disorder. I get patients calling me all the time. They can't find a bed. They can't get anybody to call them back. Anything under OHIP is months of waiting. You can't wait months if you're sick. If you're ready to quit, now's the time to quit. You can't, you can't ask somebody to stay clean and sober for 30 or 45 days until they get into a place. I got a few, few patients in my, in my practice right now that I see pro bono, and um, I'm just kind of holding their hands, keeping them sober, detoxing them until they can get a bed because I don't want them to kill themselves. And, likely, and the likelihood is they're going to give up and they're going to go about and use, and after being clean for you know three, four weeks, and then they go out and use again, if they use the second time, it's going to have a harder impact on them than it did when they were using before. So, you know, everyone's talking about this, the, the recommendations and decriminalization and increasing the ability to provide care and health, care and, and, care and, and support, right? 
But we need to scale up safer supplies right now. We need to provide safe, supervised consumption sites um, other than just harm reduction initiatives. And we need to provide more affordable and supportive homes for people in need, including people who use drugs. We need to provide safe care for people who aren't well. So here's a situation that I kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way. And we've got a couple of minutes, so I'm just going to carry through on this. But stolen trust lost cases. It's about a police officer. I'm not going to use his name. A 31-year-old, well-decorated um, homicide detective, uh, you know, did, did a great job, worked well on the job, uh, hurt himself, was uh, given um, a prescription for, uh, for uh, uh, Percocets. Um, the pain was getting worse. Um, he was running out of pills. He needed more. He ended up getting some on the street. He ended up tra uh, transitioning to oxys. Um, he couldn't get those anymore from his doctor uh, or whatever he was getting. He was going through, hurt himself again, got another prescription, um, was eating through those. Um, and basically, here's a guy that has, you know, post-traumatic stress and all kinds of other mental health issues along, along with real pain-related, you know, stuff from the job um, who ended up having to steal from the evidence lockers for years. He would take drugs out of the evidence locker to feed his habit. Right. So, you know, here's a guy that had everything going for him, got caught up in an addiction from what was a legitimate prescription for what would be considered a legitimate reason being excessive pain from an operation or from an injury who couldn't get off. And no one ever called him up on it. Right. It took years for the investigation to, 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 to uh, transpire where he was able to finally finally get caught right and they and they put an end to it now they're looking at he's in, he's helping them find solutions to a systemic problem that allows easy access to the lockers from police officers and he's not the only one that has taken uh, drugs to feed a habit driven by addiction he doesn't this guy doesn't go to jail nope he gets to resign and walk away and get some help and doesn't go to jail i don't know if i worked at a job where i was stealing from the from the from the company to feed my habit to feed my my addiction Chances are I would lose my job. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but I think, you know, we hold certain people at a different standard. And I listen, it's, it's a terrible situation. I hope he does well. I hope things work out well for him. Uh, but in the meantime, certainly a double standard when you've got kids being picked up on the street for less than that and uh, doing 30 days in jail and then have a, a hearing and a criminal record and all that for a whole lot less than this guy did. So I don't know. Enough to shake your head and go, are we really doing the right stuff? Anyway, when we come back from break, we're going to end tonight with, uh, are we really allowed to disconnect? Like it says so, there's a new law, but if I turn my phone off on the weekend and my boss is looking for me, is there a chance I'm going to lose my job? I don't know, maybe. When we come back, we're going to talk to an expert on this kind of stuff. He's a lawyer with uh, Simfiro uh, Tamarkin. Uh, they're uh, employment lawyers uh, here in Toronto. We'll see you in just a minute. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, thank you so much for joining us. This is the last segment of our show. Hope you've enjoyed the ride today and learned a few things and shared a few things. It's been great having you with us this week. Um, my guest this evening is Mackenzie Irwin, um, an associate at uh, Simfuru to Markin. Uh, they run the Employment Law Show uh, on Saturday and Sunday nights, different times, or Saturdays and Sundays, excuse me, different times throughout the day. And they're also Monday and Wednesday at 7 p.m. here on uh, 640. Uh, what I really want to talk about is Ontario's right to disconnect law has just been passed. So do you actually have the right to disconnect? Experts say that Ontario's new law on employees' right to disconnect is vague and offers little protection, but it could still prompt employers to take a closer look at work-life balances in their organization from setting up email uh, out of the office to reducing uh, daily video calls. Uh, Mackenzie Irwin, how are you this evening? 
Hi, good evening. I'm great. How are you? Awesome. You have a lot of energy for uh, someone at a quarter to 11. I love it. Let's go to midnight. Let's do an extra hour together. I'm ready to rumble. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I love employment law, so let's go. <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe you need some work-life balance. What do you think? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. This might apply to me, so for sure. Yeah, there, you, there you go. Okay, so I don't take a call from my boss on a Saturday afternoon who needs me urgently. Um, am I going to lose my job? No. So, I mean, I think this is this is the whole purpose of this legislation. It's it's a starting point. So, um, this legislation it came it, it received royal assent on Thursday. Um, and so it basically means that um, it's quite, it's actually quite short and it doesn't require a whole lot. So all it's really requiring is certain employers will have to create a written policy about the right to disconnect from work outside of regular working hours. Um, and they'll have to Im- implement something like that within six months. So what that actually means and yeah, what, what does it mean what, in real terms? Exactly. Yeah. So um, the legislation does actually define what disconnecting from work means. And it it specifically says that it means not engaging in work related communications, including emails, telephone calls, video calls, or sending or receiving of other messages. uh, So to be free from the performance of work. So what I mean, that's very clear, um, but all that the, the legislation is really requiring is that these employees um, create a written policy about this right to disconnect. So there's no substantive requirement um, and, and it's quite, you know, it's quite high level in terms of um, what exactly are they looking for employers to put. Uh, put in place in order to comply with this with this new legislation, and so that's I think where where we're getting um, a lot of pushback from employment lawyers, um, where we're all saying, you know, there really is no teeth to this legislation. It's it's quite high level. So they have a legislation. They have something. The legislation is you need to put this in your policies and procedures manual. I mean, I do I do some coaching with some pretty high level uh, companies, and the first thing I do is look at their policies and procedures manual. And you can find you know fifteen things in any company, except maybe Coors because they do such a great job. But you can find fifteen things in any organization uh, from their manual that they're not doing. Right. So, you know, putting it in a policy book, sticking it in the HR department so people can refer to it at some point isn't going to help us. I don't think, um, you know, with people having, you know, burnout issues related to their job. And I I guess what I was hoping we would hear from and so I'm sure you as well. What I'm hoping we would hear from this legislation is that, you know, employers are, are, you know, have a have a responsibility to make sure that their employees are cutting themselves off of work. Uh, at an appropriate time for an appropriate amount of time to let them regenerate. Um, and, you know, for example, I think at Chorus, there's, uh, you know, no electronics Fridays. There's like, there's just no communication on certain Fridays, if not every Friday. Uh, I'm not, I'm not in the inside of that, uh, regular flow of people. So I don't really know, but I know that there's something there that goes on like that. You know, so what are we talking about here? We're just talking about something that's going to go in a drawer and we're not going to act on it. Or can employees really lean on this now and say, listen, I'm not going to work Saturday afternoon and I'm not going to come in early Sunday night. Uh, and I'm not working till midnight on Friday, uh, because I'm just burnt out. Yeah. I mean, great questions. It, it really, really, what it boils down to, um, is what, each employer specifically puts in their policy. So 
Absolutely. If there's if there's something in it, in the company's policy that says you know you're not supposed to um, respond to emails, for example, you're not supposed to respond to emails after 5 p.m. or there's no obligation to. Um, employees can absolutely rely on those policies to assert to say you know I you know pursuant to this policy I'm not expected to re- reply to these emails past 5 p.m. The issue here is that. Um, the legislation doesn't go far enough to really require any substantive, to have any substantive requirements for those policies. So I think, um, well, first of all, they made it very clear that this is just a starting point. So, um, you know, I I hope that more will come from this in terms of one of the main issues with this this, uh, legislation is that there's no enforcement mechanism. There's no penalty um, it doesn't spell out what the penalty is for an employer who doesn't create this policy or who doesn't properly enforce this policy, for example. So I anticipate that that will come. Um, but as it stands right now, the, 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 the bill as it in the form that it received royal assent in doesn't have any doesn't speak to that at all. So there's no enforcement um, mechanism. There's no penalty. So, so, okay, so let's play this out in real terms. Okay, let's let's play this out. So, I'm an employer. I'm an employee. Um, you know, I, I'm I, you know I'm at work. Uh, some of my 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 cohort my cohorts are you know working crazy hours, working from home, weekends, nights. You know, they seem to be getting promoted. You know, I'm trying to get home to my kids and have a a healthy what life balance, a work life balance. And then one day, you know, I suddenly get called in and uh, uh, I'm let go. So when I come to you as an employment lawyer and I say I've just been let go because I was looking for a work-life balance and, uh, you know, although they didn't say it was about that, so what's the repercussions of people that want to stand behind this, employees, for example, that want to stand behind this and actually take advantage of this and think that this may be a way that they're going to keep their job even if they choose not to, you know, put in all the extra hours that, you know, may or may not be required by everyone else in the office and then they lose their job. Like, where does that stand in terms of litigation going forward? Is, do the companies have a responsibility or not to provide work-life balance? So I think you've hit the nail on the head as to what the weaknesses are here in terms of this legislation. This legislation is really, um, as I said all along, it's really high level. So it's not, it doesn't address issues where, um, you know, it doesn't address um, if an employee wants to continue working outside of those working hours. Um, It's simply providing a right to disconnect, meaning that, you know, the employer has to have a policy in place that addresses, you know, when you're supposed to be on and when you're supposed to be off, or you can be off, but it doesn't require you to be off during those times. It simply provides employees with the opportunity to say, you know, Pursuant to the policy, I don't need to be working. I I shouldn't be responding to emails past 5 p.m. You know, it doesn't prevent those employees. There are there are many employees who you know are their most productive hours are outside of the regular nine to five, and it doesn't prevent those employees from continuing to work whenever you know work overtime or work the hours that work best for them. Um, and so I think that's where we kind of fall short, where when people are thinking, oh, we now have this piece of legislation that gives us the right to disconnect, um, it doesn't really address those inequities or those um, those differences in employees that might result from someone who's going to take advantage of a, a right to disconnect and those who are just going to ignore it. 
But I, okay, so I, I I totally get that. But my, I guess I, I guess maybe what we should you know what what advice you would probably want to give people. I don't want to take your job away from you. Is but if you're signing a contract. Maybe you want to be looking for something in that contract that spells out the fact that, you know, you're, you're, you're not available after six and you're not available Saturday and Sundays. Like, is that, is that something that would, uh, you know, sort of mitigate someone losing their job uh, around not agreeing to uh, extra hours, even though, you know, it's sort of a cultural thing that says they don't have to. Like, you know, behind the scenes, hush, hush, underneath the, you know, that nobody's paying attention to. You build it right into a contract. You can absolutely build it right into a contract, but I think um, in terms of people who are looking uh, who are looking to start new jobs during this time when this bill is, is now in force, um, the, the employer actually has an obligation. So um, to you can ask those questions in, in the interview process. The employer will have an obligation to provide you with that policy um, in the interview process, so that you can take a look and say, okay, this is something that I can get a, on board with. Um, and, and I would note that um, employers right now have six months to comply. So they have six months to draft that policy. But six months from now, um, you can get, walk into an interview and you can ask the employer to provide them uh, you with a copy of their right to disconnect policy. They say one of the main factors in burnout these days was the pressure not to answer emails after hours. Some people, uh, it was the structure of the workday that had often led to after hours work uh, the in-person office culture didn't translate well at home, and many people found themselves in back-to-back video meetings that didn't translate well, wasted precious time trying to handle household responsibilities and so on. A lot of the overload comes from the fact that written communication is being marginalized, right? People are saying by now having video calls. It's, you know, it's, so it's, here's the thing, right? We only got a minute left. And by the way, you're a great guest. I hope you're going to come back for sure. Uh, we're, we're going to get you on our hot list. So we'll be calling you to do middle of the night stuff with me. But, um, the, the, um, you know, the reality is that people are burning out. They're not, they're not recognizing burnout. And as companies, we're not doing a good job, you know, reading the burnout. And, and people are, you know, worried about, you know, if they don't answer the phone or they don't answer the email, now you got this anxiety and pressure. Oh my God, I didn't answer it. What if I lose my job? And yeah, I can't really work right now. I'm not supposed to because it's after five. Five o'clock. So in translation into actual practical terms, it's going to be much harder for someone to get their head around doing it unless the company like Chorus is really behind you and says, hey, no, 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 no communication after seven. And uh, we don't expect to hear from you again until Monday morning. Um, it's kind of built into their culture, not just into their workbook. Uh, I guess that's what we're looking for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's the most important part about the fact that this bill has um, received royal assent. Um, you know, it's stimulating, it's, it's instigating the conversation, it's forcing employers to have that conversation, um, to create that policy, um, instigating the conversation and stimulating a cultural atmosphere around respecting the separation of work and home. So whether that, or not it's toothless or not, I think that's the most you can still do it. You can part. still do it at work. Uh, so yeah, Mackenzie, exactly. I hate to cut you off. We got to go because they're going to scream at me for uh, going to going to the news here. Mackenzie Irwin, she's an associate at Sinfrira Tremarkin. Uh, excellent guest. We're going to have you back for sure. Um, and uh, pay attention to what she says. She's a smart person, understands what she's saying. Love the ones you're with. Make sure you hug everybody around you. Let's spread some joy and happiness uh, uh, these days going forward because it's dark outside. It's a little cold and we need love to keep us warm. We'll see you next week. I love you. You're the best audience ever. Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto.